process of scrubbing our messaging and position today. We're a nine-year-old, typical nine-year-old governor, right? And I equated to a nine-year-old kid. I'm going to talk about me, 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 me. Then I'm going to tell you about my friends, i.e. testimonials. And then if we've got time, I'm going to learn a little bit about you. We've got to start with the first line manager because that's where the rubber meets the road. I don't care how good our enablement programs are. If they don't own the adoption, the execution, and the positive modeling of it, not going to happen. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Roderick Jefferson, and Roderick's the Vice President of Field Enablement at Netscope, and he's the author of a new book titled Sales Enablement 3.0, The Blueprint to Sales Enablement Excellence. And that's what we talk about in our conversation today. Roderick shares tips and best practices from his book and from his experiences in the field that outline what's required to become an effective sales enablement practitioner. We also dive into what the ultimate purpose of sales enablement is, which Roderick breaks down to say it's really just to partner with sales leaders to build and execute on strategies that achieve two main goals, decreasing ramp time and increasing productivity, all of which lead to increased revenue. And we dig into why Roderick believes that if your sales enablement team is, team is still enabling sellers to focus on selling products, selling services, or even solutions, then you are doing them, your company, and your prospects a real disservice. You will listen to all this. So stick around, all this and much, much more. But before we get to Roderick, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And we certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us some feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Roderick, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for having me. I'm honored. Oh, pleasure's all mine to have you here. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So first, I always start this way. First and foremost, sales guy. And I think that, that that's important to, <laughs> to throw out there because I've walked in shoes, right? right. I, I'm not the typical trainer that throws out theory. I, I'm an actual practitioner and have been... So I started out as a BDR and um, got promoted to AE, did really well, went to President's Club a couple of times, mm. got promoted to sales leader and actually turned it down, oddly enough. Because I realized, yeah. I know it sounds crazy, I realized I loved the process of selling when I did taking down big deals. And so right. what I did was talk myself into um, my first training job. I said, what if I could take my basic rudimentary templates and spread that out? I could get people ramped up faster. I could get more people to President's Club and what VP of sales is going to say no to that. So he said, if you can do that, then you've got a new job. So I walked into my first training job at AT&T. Oh, a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> and um, from there, I have run sales training, sales productivity, effectiveness, et cetera. And oddly enough, I am the person that coined the phrase sales enablement. Really? Years ago. Yeah. And it, my baby has taken off and gone a direction that I had absolutely no idea it was going to go. I've been blessed over the years. I've run enablement at Siebel Systems, Network Appliance, eBay, HP, Oracle, Salesforce, and Marketo. Then I started to feel as though I couldn't look myself in the face and call myself a practitioner. I'd gotten so I retired. So I went and I know another glutton for punishment went and consulted for three years mm-hmm. and got my, my fingernails dirty again and rolled up my sleeves. And now I'm the VP of field enablement at Netscope, a cybersecurity company. So it's been a phenomenal run so far. Yeah, you know, I'd heard of a few of those companies you rattled off there. Um, They're going to be big one day. They're going to catch on. Some of them are going to catch on. I think there's, some have potential, yeah. Uh, interesting. So, like, 
do I owe you a royalty on this show every time we air? Because <laughs> I was not smart enough to uh, trademark sales enablement in hindsight. Yeah, well, that could have been interesting. Well, so let's dig into that a little bit. So why'd you come up with the term? What, what was the inspiration for, for that? <laughs> I was actually in a meeting with my VP of sales back in 04 with uh, um, NetApp. And I was actually being smart-ass, oddly enough. I know, shocking. Hard <laughs> yeah. to fathom, right? So we're talking, he says, you know, we can't handle discovery and qualification very well. Throw training at it, right? We are right. having problem with objection handling, so we're discounting too deeply. Throw training at it. Right. Our senior leaders are managers and not leaders. Throw training at it. And I said, I, actually, I think you train animals and you enable people. We're not yeah. teaching people to sit or roll over. We want this to be a long-standing, ongoing occurrence rather than a single event. And from that light bulb moment came the inception of sales enablement. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I love that statement. I, I use a slightly different version, which is, yeah, you train, you train animals, you educate people. But uh, enable works just as well. So, oh, righty. Um, but I think it's, it's, it speaks to... A, a mindset and a perspective that, that I think is still not widely held enough about how do we enable people to perform it at a higher level. Because, you know, the point you just made is, yeah, everybody spots probably You make this point in the book as well is, is you know, you spot a problem, you throw training at it sort of reflexively. Absolutely. And it doesn't require a ton of thoughts <clears throat> to do that. Um, and so, yeah, you still have training as being sort of this – disconnected series of episodes and, or moments as opposed to part of a coherent plan for, hey, how are we going to help people get better? Absolutely. And I don't want to knock training. So I don't need the trainers sending me information over on social media. I'm not saying that I don't believe in training because I do. I think it's a component of, to your point, a component of enablement, but it's just one component. And enablement, I think the reason that it hasn't gained the traction that I believe it is beginning to gain now is because it means something different everywhere. You ask mm -hmm. 10 people, as I said in the book, what enablement is, you'll get probably 10 answers. Sure. None, of, none of those would be wrong, but none of them would be complete either. And I think it comes down to where you are in the maturation cycle of your company. If you are a rocket ship and you're growing exponentially, what's it going to be? Onboarding and training is where you're going to focus, right? Then when you get into that mid-range where you get more of a big ticket sale, it shifts again because now I've got to focus on a different type of seller, a different mm -hmm. IEP, if you will, ideal mm -hmm. employee profile, because we don't right. have enough acronyms in the world. Right. right. But Great then smart. when you get to that that latter stage where you're the large enterprise company, now it's that long-term relationship sale. And each one of those requires a different level of enablement and a different type of enablement as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean there's sort of horses for courses, right? And you hire a different set of people, to your point, you hire different people at different stages of the company. Because um, they're, and I think this is, is something that sort of aligns with that, that, but is not integrated fully enough, I think, into sort of the hiring ethos, which is that, yeah, I mean, there are people who are, you know, startup people, there are people who are scale up people, and there are people who are established people. Absolutely. And, and, yeah, how we enable them changes, but 
I don't think we, there's enough work going into sort of distinguishing between who those people are and hiring the right people at the right point in time. Agreed. And that's where we can really use some work. And that's where I think enablement really comes in and becomes an integral part of one, the go-to-market strategy for a company to differentiate mm-hmm. us from the old view of being the fixers of broken things and broken people. And <laughs> also an opportunity to, and I, and I always give an analogy of an orchestra when I think about enablement. Sure. When people say, what what sells enablement to you right now, as opposed to when the, the phrase was conceived. Now it's, <clears throat> you think about an orchestra, you've got woodwind, strings, percussion, brass, all trying to play the, the same song. Sometimes they're out of tune, they're out of phase, they're playing on top of each other. Well, let's align that to business. The same thing happens. You've got marketing, product marketing, product management, engineering, HR, sales, all trying to do the right thing. But the problem is there's a lack of coordination, collaboration, and orchestration, if you will, until in both cases, one person or one organization, which I believe is enablement, steps up, taps the stand, and now all of that noise and chaos becomes a beautiful sheet of music. That's what we do in our essence. Right. Now, that description you just gave, though, is there are people that say, well, huh, that sounds like revenue operations. Oh, I love that we're going here. That could be rev ops, could be rev strategy, could be, in my case, it's field enablement. It really comes down to what's your remit, right? When I think about rev ops and rev enablement, I look at it from the perspective of everything in the buyer's journey, inclusive of things like sales operations and even marketing operations all coming together. Mm -hmm, In my case, I own field enablement today, and that is all enablement other than customer education. So I don't have the ops and the mops functions under me. They are they sit as peers to me. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's where I make that distinguishment between the, the field enablement and then the rev ops piece or the rev enablement and the whole even revenue strategy. Talking about the customer journey end to end, then you've got all the M&A due diligence pieces that come into play. You've got the market expansion piece that comes. Mm-hmm. You've, of course, got the sales and services and support and all the enablement pieces. But I think it all comes down to being the voice of the customer at the end of the day. For enablement. Absolutely. For enablement. Certainly. And, and being that, that hub that spokes out to every part of the organization to mm-hmm. make sure, that, again, back to the orchestra analogy, that we're all playing the same tune, the same time, the right way on behalf of the customer. And left hand knows what right hand's doing. All right. So let me ask you a question about that then. So, and I think that's great. And, and I think that's where we should be. But I was just having a conversation with someone earlier today on a recording another episode talking about how we still have this great uh, gap, let's say, that exists between the way most sales organizations sort of view the buyer's and the journey the buyers are on uh, versus the way they view the sales the sales process, right? That there's mm-hmm. this very uh, no alignment, let's say, between the selling process and the buying journey. Strong disconnect is what I see out there. Right. And so is that enablement's role to try to narrow that gap? Oh, absolutely. Um, when you think about it, the, the reason that I uh, over the years I've seen that disconnect is – I want to say simple, but it's simply complex, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, you, you can define you can define it simply. The solution is harder. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and for the most part, I've seen it because 
companies have tried to take the buyers and shoehorn them into their sales process, their sales methodology, their sales stages. Let's just call it their selling motions. Right. As opposed to starting up high with the buyer's journey, figuring out what it is that they need and how they purchase and what they're going to purchase, and then waterfalling down and adjusting your selling process to the buyer's journey. When you do that and everything starts and ends with the customer or the prospect, the whole world shifts. So to answer your question, what's enablement's role in that? It's again to align those. Right now, we're rolling out a new sales process and new sales methodology. That's not coming from ops, not coming from sales. It is coming from enablement that is pulling all of those pieces together that say sales, SE, customer experience, product marketing, product management. Everybody come to the table at the same time and let's talk this thing through so that we don't have any misunderstandings or any explanations five, six, eight different times. When you do that, then you get that alignment and that the eyes are squarely on the buyer and the buyer's journey as opposed to what we're doing internally. Yeah. It's not utopia. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to try to pretend that it's it's unicorns and rainbows because it's not. It is very, very painful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, like the example I oftentimes give on the program is, is, you know, I love this, that classic Gartner chart from a few years ago on buyer enablement. They, you know, I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, they mm-hmm. call it their spaghetti diagram. They diagram the oh, buyer's yeah. journey. It's this complex, dense process with starts and stops and restarts and so on. And at core, there's sort of four jobs they've identified that buyers accomplish during their buyer journey. And yeah, I thought I looked at that and thought, well, this is yeah. I mean, this is what I've experienced over <laughs> decades of selling. This is you've got it. You've nailed it. But I say I've never spoken to a person subsequent to that who's in a sales leadership position that says, "Yeah, you know, we've we've modified our sales motion to align with what the buyers actually do." Well, I can say that you've now walked in and and met one, not myself, but what we did internally was we decided we're going to start there because that's mm-hmm. what made most sense. And right. by not starting there, now we look at how the funnel changes and how why the sales stage. And the selling process is so long is because we go in, we, we give our explanation, we do our due diligence and our discovery, we come back and then we go back and talk to them and they go, yeah, that's what you heard, but that's not what I said. So now if we take that, the steps of, of the buying process and flip it on its head and say, now discovery and qualification is about asking more questions and less about trying to be the smart person in the room. Find out what's going on, where that pain is coming from, and, and if it's pain. Because it could be, and that's, I think, another problem is we're always looking for or trying to create this compelling event or pain. It's mm. not always pain, though, Andy. Sometimes wow. it's increased productivity and efficiency. Sometimes it is decreased pain. But you'll only get that by asking questions in the disco and qual process versus assuming or asking questions so that you can move the sale forward. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I I. I can get on my my soapbox about why I think you should you should never ask about pain points because I I don't think buyers think in terms of pain points. Um, they don't. They think or about products or solutions or platforms. Yeah, they think about desired outcomes. Um, I, I've got invest- a problem that I need solved. Yeah. So so yeah no totally totally aligned there. Yeah, I, I sort of look. Yeah, I love to simplify complex things and and yeah, I look at. And I think if you read literature about decision making and so on, you see that buyers basically go through three stages, in, and it's it sort of tracks to what Gartner 
put in the report is they put four, I think it's three, but whatever. It's but it's you know, buyers first identify what the problem is and what desired outcomes they want. They then go through a how stage about how we can achieve these things. And the third order decision is who we're going to do it with. And yet most sellers come to the game in the first call. It's like they assume that, hey, I'm the answer. Which and is, this whole idea as of, we both know, the wrong way to go these days. Right. And you know, I think that that what stage and the how stage, these first two stages are really – to your point, it's not about products and platforms. This is a this is a a battle of ideas. And if you don't have ideas, if you don't have questions that stimulate ideas and so on, yeah, increasingly you're gonna be on the outside looking in because you know, if this is facts and figures and stuff like that, buyer gets that from online. They don't need you for that. No, and they've got more access to content now than ever before. <laughs> when I was selling, I wish I would have had the kind of inf- the access to information. I think the big shift that, that I'm see- starting to see and mm-hmm. that we have to continue to push, and, and I'm right here as an evangelist forward, and that is we've got to get our sellers to start having conversations and stop giving presentations. Absolutely. And, and what I mean is, you know, you throw up the, the whole deck and you go, oh, we're going to skip slide six, which means, in, in essence, I don't know how to position it, so I'm never coming back to it. As opposed to that, what if we could get folks to really start getting into true storytelling, talking about it from a, a references and testimonial position, the ability to whiteboard so it then it intrinsically becomes a conversation versus just throwing slides up so that I can see if, you know, it's the whole spaghetti on the wall. Whatever sticks, oh, that's the part I'm going to dive into because that's what's important to you. Get away from all the nonsense and just ask people questions. And I think there's one critical question that I see get left out a lot. And the, is, the true sellers ask this question. And that is, we always find out everything about the company, right? We do our due diligence. We find out what's going on, where are you going, who's my competition. The one question that gets left out is this one. So, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, by doing business with my company, what will that mean for you personally? Will it get them a bigger seat at the, at the table? Will it get them a promotion? Will it get them out of the doghouse? But if you leave that piece out, you're only getting 50% of the answer. And talk about building a champion. Can you think of a better question than that one? Um, no, I think, well, maybe. <laughs> but I think that's a great question. Um, actually, I was just presenting earlier today at an online summit about discovery. And that was that question was included in there. I, you know, to me, that's in my new book, my new book that's coming out uh, in February. Mm-hmm. You know, I define six or key discovery questions or category of questions. But, but yeah, the one you talked about is right in there. So, yeah, what's... You need to have the ask the question that enables the buyer to quantify the impact of change on the organization, on the the team that they're part of, and on them personally. And if you don't take it to your point, if you don't take it down to the personal level, then yeah, you don't fully understand what you're dealing with the situation. And you will always be viewed as a vendor. Yeah, that that's just here to sell me something, as opposed to. This person actually took time to find out and personalize this for me and include me in this piece, but not only from an inclusive perspective, but how can this person help me reach another goal, not just the company sell more fill in the blank? Right. Exactly. Again, part of this you know, simplification thing that you like and I like and so on is, <laughs> is for me, you know, I think it, we have to start by reorienting the mindset of sellers. 
So they understand their, they understand their job differently. And so the, if you ask most sellers, you know, I've done this when I give talks and you know, tell me what your job is as a seller, right? And you know, throw up answers here to and on the stage we'll take them. And invariably it it goes around a persuading somebody to buy your product or service, um, and yeah, you know, variations of that. And I think when people have that that mindset is they're going to embark on a certain path of actions that you know, are sort of these prototypical salesy actions, right? And we wonder why people don't like sales. And then people, <laughs> want, people don't like sales. Well, they don't like sales because this is the way sellers act. Yeah. But the thing is, this isn't innate human behavior. This is learned behavior. Oh, it's learned. Absolutely. So this is on us as a profession and so on. So before we dig into that, I think just what's really critical is to say, okay, we need to change the mindset that people have. They're, they're understanding what their job is. And so I believe that selling is nothing more, I'll give you my short version here, nothing more than listening to understand what is the most important thing to the buyer and then helping them get that. Absolutely. It's, it's job. about being able to help. Not so. And then in that piece, Andy, comes time to call in and call out, which I think is equally, if not more important. Sure. That's part of it. Because if you understand what the most important thing is, you'll know whether you're fit or not. And you'll know whether you're, A, whether it makes sense for them to invest their time and attention in you and for you to invest your time and attention in them. But it's this mindset says, look, I'm here to understand you know, really understand what's the most important thing to you and help you get it. Well, that's a whole different attitude than saying it's my job to persuade you to buy my product. Yeah. yeah. When I, when I was in sales, I would always tell people, I'm not here to sell anything. I'm here to help understand if there's a match between what you need and what we can provide. If not, if I can help you find even that match, I was open to that. And I think there's a lot of folks that get nervous about them saying, you know, we're not the right Fill in the blank, but you know what? So and so might be for you. Mm-hmm. There's a huge level of credibility in that, and I actually sure. close sales later by telling prospects yep. that we weren't the fit. But when yep. there was a time for a fit, they remembered this person came to help me. They didn't try to shoehorn me into something that I didn't need. Yeah, no, I, 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 <laughs> I think it's a very powerful thing to do. You build a lot of credibility, develop a lot of trust with people. Do that, they would they. Very well, may come back to you on that, but so you know, I think when you when you take this this you know very simple view of what it is you're trying to do, then it's like okay, what are the behaviors we need in order to do that, right? In order to help the buyers, and yeah, it's those behaviors aren't you know pitching, uh, you know, showing up, throwing up all the sort of things that we know that that I like to lump into the category of salesy because <laughs> salesy has no value for the buyer. None. None. It has no this value for you as a seller. And so that's, but so, this, so it, we were talking about enablement. I, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's just like, you know, to me, this is the big challenge for enablement is we just need to stop this behavior. You know, we, it, it's like, you know, I think companies need to say, look, we're going to go scrub our training and anything that smacks of this, like I said, stereotypically salesy behavior, we're just not going to put out there anymore. We're in the process of scrubbing our messaging and positioning today. 
for a nine-year-old, typical nine-year-old company, right? And I equate it to a nine-year-old kid. I'm going to talk about me, 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 me. <laughs> then I'm going to tell you about my friends, i.e. testimonials, right? right. <laughs> and then if we've got time, I'm going to learn a little bit about you. Right. Well, I think there's three ways where we could change that mindset. The first is we've got to start with the first line manager because that's where the rubber meets the road. I, I don't care how good our enablement programs are. If they don't own the adoption, the execution, and the positive modeling of it, it's not going to happen. So infuse them into every one of your enablement programs that's being built. Don't try and build it and then take it to them. They're going to poo-poo it right away. The second thing is, I believe, and, and I do this in, in my teams, I will not hire anyone on my enablement team that has not carried a bag in some sort because there's no credibility. I, I, I'm hiring a theorist or, or just a pure trainer. I need someone that can talk about how painful those shoes are that they're walking in or how comfortable they are with credibility. Mm-hmm. And I think the third thing is enablement, especially the enablement leader, should be a part of the interview process for a couple of reasons. One is because we're looking at whether or not they have the propensity to fulfill the programs that we've got in place or that are growing. Secondly, I think we're looking at more than just can they hit the number and what does it take to do that? And we get a bit more of a, of a cultural touch. And then third, it's because we've got to even higher BS filter than sales leaders because we have to deal with them. <laughs> well, well, let's talk <laughs> about sales leaders though, because this is, I agree with you 100%. I think that that my belief is, and based on all the data I've seen and people I've talked to, is that we dramatically underinvest in enabling frontline leadership. And we put these poor people in positions where, you know, they get promoted, they get very little training in general, unless they're, you know, working for some larger enterprises, more mature enterprises, but even then, still not as much. And, yeah, I like to serve, throw out the serve, (laughs) you know. Not meant to be a serious question, though. It 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 could be is, is say, look, okay, LinkedIn sales, state of sales. I think so. We spend fifteen billion dollars a year on mm-hmm. sales training in the United States. Uh, ASTD, I think I said it was twenty twenty billion, of which I would wager maybe ten percent is spent on enabling managers. Maybe ten. Right. And I I ask people, I say, so okay, what if we flipped that percentage? What if we spent ninety percent of our <laughs> sales training dollars? on enabling management and leadership at all levels, not just frontline, but all levels, mm-hmm. and 10% on the sellers. What do we think would happen to sales? Um, I think it would change drastically because, to your point, what we do today is we take a rock star salesperson and we throw them into a sales manager role, but we never teach them how to actually be a leader. So we've created two problems here. One, you've got a patch that's uncovered that was covered by a rock star, so now it's susceptible to all of your competition. And secondly, you've got someone who's never interviewed, never run a team meeting, never had a difficult conversation, and they're going to try and micromanage their team, which I've never heard micromanage used in a positive light, Andy. Maybe it's just Mm -hmm. me. I don't know. Right. Right. But they're trying to micromanage their team the same way they did their patch. So to your point, what if we invested in, you know, the high potential programs of getting people in stages in a succession plan before we just threw them out to the wolves, right? Have them manage a small patch, have them manage a small team, and then progress them up. I know that's not always possible in every company, but if you did have a hypo program, at least they would get the practical application and experience 
of the small things that differentiates you between being a manager and a leader. And I think that's the important part we really should be focusing on. Yeah. Right? Well, and what would come out of that to answer your question? We would have a relationship, we being enablement and all the other groups would have a relationship with someone with a bit more empathy uh, and a, a bit more open eyes and maybe even open minds to communication, collaboration, and deeper orchestration. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 I feel, I mean, I was in that position. I, not to say I felt <laughs> bad for myself, but, but yeah, I, I, at least at the time when I had my first sales management job, I mean, I <clears throat> got promoted after 21 months, I think, in my first job. So a sales mm-hmm. manager had close to a dozen people uh, under my charge, most of whom were older than I was. <laughs> and Which it creates a whole other level of problem. Right. And I was just I remember thinking to myself, it's like, yeah, I'm excited about this, but I mean, I don't what do I have to offer the guy who's been in the field for 20 years and is doing a perfectly fine job most of the time? Um, you just don't want to be a manager, right? <laughs> and and we don't, it's not just leadership skills and so on, but it is like performance improvement, for instance. You know, to me, that's that's a skill. We don't, people need to understand how you work with someone to improve their performance. It's just sort of a generic sense, not necessarily in sales. I mean, we could take yeah. a lot of lessons and from that. And how do you individualize that? Instead of and how do you individualize it, right? Food. But we don't provide those tools to managers. And then when sellers, a large fraction of sellers aren't hitting quota, yeah, a manager gets nuked. Some sellers get nuked, but it's like we didn't give them the tools they needed. You know, these aren't <laughs> these and it, it just sort of drives me nuts. It's like, okay, I'd rather invest way more in the management right now because if you ask sellers where they learn how to sell, which mm-hmm. I've done in yeah. the past, is you know. Managers and peers. Well, what's be, important to your managers imperative to you, right? So if well, this is what got them to that goal, that's what Who's I'm influential? Every day. And what if we stopped assuming that every rock star salesperson wanted to be a sales manager? Well, what if they wanted to come over to the enable side of the house or they wanted to go look at SE or PMM or wherever it is? But we just assume that you've got a one track that points you directly to sales leadership and that also every single salesperson is not necessarily coin-operated. This may be a stepping stone for them they were really good at, but they have something else in line and in mind inside the company. But rarely does that actually get asked. We just assume, oh, they're killing it. Let's move them up to sales manager. And I think that's why a part of why we have so many poor sales managers. Some people just aren't built. I think, and I know it sounds crazy, I look at sales management kind of the same way that I do college and marriage. Great institution but not meant for everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, or sometimes, yeah, you need you need a practice spouse before you get to the exactly. Um, need the starter wife. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I've I knew have known lots of people in my career who jumped to management and then opted out and said, I just want to be an individual contributor, and we're happier being that, and have in some cases have grown to be very senior individual contributors with you know huge contribution that they make and they carry a title but they're just an individual contributor and that thing, and in, in some cases far more lucrative without sure. all the headaches of, right. of having to drive an entire team's performance but but they work for companies that are flexible to say well look we want to keep this person so how do we keep this person keep them motivated keep them happy keep them you know finding fulfillment in what they're doing 
Mm-hmm. And some of it comes with, yeah, they take on more account, more accounts, more important accounts, larger accounts. Um, yeah, maybe a title, some pay, maybe a lot of pay. I mean, there's ways to do it as companies, be more creative to be able to keep your people. And I think to your point you made as far as we need to be able to, as leaders, leaders need to be able to coach these people to say, let's really take a look at what you want to do in your career and is this really the right fit? Absolutely. I know it sounds crazy, but sometimes we have to really look at what's important for the employee, not just the company. Yeah. Well, and sometimes people have to take the take the leap and try it before they find out that, hey, it's, it's not the right thing for them. And that's what case, I always tell people. As I'm sorry. That's why I always tell people that, that I mentor. Never allow anyone else other than you to drive your career. Not your boss, not your CEO, not senior leadership team because they don't have the vested interest in it and they don't have to go to work every day. They may be in what I, in my book, I call my candy bar job, right? Mm-hmm, and that's, right. I was only paid in my favorite candy bar. Would I still do this job for them? The answer may be yes. For the individual or the manager or the leader, that may not be a, a distinctive yes. So you've got to figure out what's that candy bar job and how do I make strides every day to get one step closer to it, whatever it may be. No, I think it's a great point. I, th- I think that that, and I believe strongly in this, that one bad trend in sales over the past twenty years has been to remove some of the autonomy away from sellers in Absolutely. favor of greater compliance to processes and metrics, and not enabling people the environment to become the best version of themselves. I think it's yeah more than I think that's the motivation for most people is is how do we come better at what I'm doing and if they have a path to doing that yeah and they're getting paid and and life is good and they're finding fulfillment and and sometimes even joy in what they're doing that might be less pressed to say yeah I need to get promoted absolutely and and as an enablement leader that statement you just made Andy is why I'm not a big fan of playbooks I ah. think it is too constrictive. Right. What I enjoy is putting a framework in place, which yes. still gives the seller an autonomy and some flexibility. But when you put a playbook in, it's you have to follow these steps sequentially and do it this way. And it has to be dark blue. I didn't say royal or light blue. It's dark <laughs> blue. Right. But when you put the framework in, you just go in and say, same analogy, it's blue. Right. Within this framework, it's blue. You determine, is it royal? Is it navy? Is it Carolina blue? Whatever it is. But stay within parameters and keep them on the rails. But you don't have to be so directive all the time. Well, and I think that this, yeah, it's sort of a complex topic we could dive into in depth. But is <clears throat> oftentimes, you know, managers operate these from a position of fear, right? They're afraid Absolutely. to do something that's not the same as what's always been done, or people are doing, peers are doing in other companies, and we know, you know, we can talk about the cultures that that uh, forced this to happen. But yeah, as individuals, to a point you made before, is no one really cares about you but you at the end of the day. And you have to make the decisions that are right for you. And in some cases, and I look at my own career, is I was not a prototypical candidate for success in sales, but I determined pretty early that the only way I was going to be able to stay in sales was to do things that aligned with who I was as a, as a person and to act in a way that aligned with who I was as a person. So it wasn't the same as everybody else. It, it was, 
yeah, we were given frameworks. We didn't have playbooks. And I had bosses that were tolerant of me sort of doing my own thing my own way. But I delivered. And I was willing to, to take that on the additional accountability. And, you know, they're prepared to give it to me. And I think more sellers need to, you know, push back a little bit and say, hey, I think there's a better way to achieve the same end. Give me some more rope and I'll show you how I'm going to do that. Yeah, and I think in the right companies and the right cultures that can happen. And I learned early in my career from a great mentor. Look, the company is here to make a profit, not friends. Friends are optional. Right. (laughs) And so with that in mind, to your point, you have got to drive where you're going. Yes. And the thing I love about sales is it cannot be a more simplistic role on the planet. There's the Mendoza line. You're either above it and you hit quota or you're below it and you didn't. There's Mm -hmm. no kind of sort of, I kind of hit it. it. No, you either did or you didn't. But at the end of the day, I've I've sat in um, president's clubs with people that I know didn't necessarily, quote unquote, follow the process mm-hmm. and killed it, right? Sure. And then you, of course, you've got other people that followed it and made it. And then you've got people that went completely contrary to it and still made it as well. And so you look at that collectively, especially as an enablement leader. And, and I always thought it wasn't a matter of a box they're inside or they're outside of it. I wanted to talk to all three of those types mm-hmm. and find out what were the best practices of all of them that then I could infuse into that framework. Yeah, And now you're hitting all the different, you've got the different learning styles. Now you've got all the different types of sellers. And when you get that individual that falls into one of those categories, you now know how to address them and also how to motivate them differently than the folks in the other two categories. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's, it's I think, this desire to have it sales be so cookie cutter, both in terms of the people doing the work as well as the people you're selling to is one of the great delusions. And we wonder why yeah. win rates are low and and so few reps and percentage are hitting numbers. It's part of that mindset that, that's enabling that, unfortunately. so And, and you can have consistency without it being cookie cutter. There yeah, is still a, a space in, inside of consistency for yep. autonomy and for flexibility. Yeah. Well, and I think to point you made before, though, is you, know, you distinguish between managers and leaders. I, I call it between leaders and bosses. And yeah. Yep. We got lots of bosses. We don't have enough leaders. Yeah. We have got Absolutely. too many bosses because, in part, because we're not helping them understand what it takes to become a leader. To the point you made earlier, and I think that's and the person that groomed them didn't know what it took to be a leader. Yeah, yeah, and it keeps propagating Absolutely. over and over. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's going to be a topic we'll have to delve into at a future conversation. And yeah, I don't think we even really ended up talking about your book, but we can have you come back and we can do that. Oh, the whole time we've been talking about the book. <laughs> Everything in that we've talked about in this conversation is right. in my book, Sales Enablement 3.0. All right, Sales Enablement 3.0 by Roderick Jefferson. I presume available wherever books are sold. Absolutely. All right. Well, Roderick, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. And yeah, I look forward to doing it again. Likewise, looking forward to it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Roderick Jefferson, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.